I think uh, any time a minister steps in the pulpit, <clears throat> he should think that his <clears throat> uh, message has urgency, and um, I usually do, but I think this message this morning has <clears throat> a particular sense of urgency about it. Um, <clears throat> the Christian home and experience and grace. This last week, my wife and I spent about five hours working with a couple going through a divorce. It's a Christian husband and wife with three children, and um, we've worked with them for over a year in their marriage, and finally they decided to get a divorce, which uh, says so much for our counseling. <clears throat> and um, he's committed adultery uh, several times, and um, what he says is, I love her, but I can't stand living with her. And uh, feeling that burden on my heart as I speak this morning, while at the same time recognizing that I don't speak to an audience like this without knowing that, this, <clears throat> that there are those who have experienced divorce, if not directly, then probably most everyone here indirectly, by those close to us, my prayer always is that those have experienced the healing and forgiveness of the grace of Christ that's always available. And that healing is for them. But it raises the urgency, I think, of uh, this subject this morning for me. Now, since this is on the family, I thought uh, to sort of give you a context, you needed to see my family. Uh, this is my family here. I'm pretty much responsible for, for them. I think my wife did the lion's portion uh, of responsibility for raising our children. I did sneak the three grandchildren, the girls in here every Tuesday. Uh, those are in our care. We do child care every Tuesday, and then Wednesday is spent recovering. <laughs> After that, if you are grandparents, you may understand what I mean. Well, uh, to begin with, I'm going to take us uh, to Genesis. My first point, marriage is a gift of grace from God. And I'm going to work hard at getting, making that important point across to everyone here. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, Adam, Adam, and the image of God, he created him, Adam, male and female, man and woman, he created them. That means that both man and woman are made in the image of God, not just man. A man could not say, I'm made in the image of God, but see the woman over there, she's made in my image. He could not say that. Both man and woman made in the image of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the highest view of woman you will find in any culture in the world. Nowhere will you have find that high a view of woman as you find in the very first chapter of our Bible. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Same chapter, man and woman are there, but this is B.C. It's very good before children. <laughs> That's the only time that phrase, very good, appears. And after Cain and Abel come on the scene, uh, that is marred, to say the least. It was very good. Uh, the Lord God said, it is not good. Now, that's 2.18. That's the only time the phrase, not good, 
appears in all the creation narrative. Now look closely at what was not good. It was not good for man to be alone. Some say, well, woman was created for reproduction. Well, that's not false, but that's not what that text says. It was his aloneness. It was an existential problem that prompted God to create woman. Not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable or fitting for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground, so here's what he does. He brings all the animals before man. This is what I call the Eden Tees. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever man called each living creature, that was his name. It's sort of like God is saying, well, could I, how about one of these graceful saber-toothed tigers? How about a nice, soft, smooth walrus? But for the man, there was not found a helper suitable. Then the Lord God made a woman. From the rib he had taken out of man, he brought her to the man. That is a wedding picture. But what I want you to see in that phrase is who is the father of the bride? She is a gift from God to Adam. This is an exercise in God's grace. And the man said, now, you, you have to look at this in Hebrew to really get the force of this. And so most of the translations don't quite catch it. So this is the way it really needs to be translated to catch that. Now, man awakens from his sleep, and he sees woman for the very first time. And actually, there's a little Hebrew word that opens that verse that can be translated, wow. Now we're getting someplace. He's seen this parade of animals. He sees woman. Wow. I said that in one of my classes one time, and a kid in the class was going from my class to Hebrew class. He came back, and he said, well, you're right. That word could have been translated, wow. This one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for this one was taken out of man. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, let me, I'm not going to dump a lot of psychology on you, but you need to know this. Shame, technically, in psychology, is a mild Fear response. Shame is a mild fear response. Now hold that. Here we have unity. Naked is physical. Shame is psychological. There's no fracture, no division. They are one. Pristine beauty in the one, in the oneness, the unity of this man and woman, husband and wife. Naked but no shame. However, chapter three, they participate in the forbidden fruit, their eyes are open. They cover their nakedness. Then God comes to them in the coolness of the Garden of Eden. He calls out to them. But the Lord God calls to the man, Where are you? I don't think he's lost track of man. I think what he's wanting here to do is to prompt within man the question of himself. What have I done? Where have I been? He answered, Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And what? I was afraid Why? Because I was naked, so I hid. Psychological, physical, fracture. Shame, in chapter 2 now, is full-blown into fear. 
in chapter 3. And there is fracture, there is divorcement, there is sin, separation at every level of existence. Man experiences that now in guilt inside himself. He experiences that in the fractured relationship between him and the woman, between him and the ground, between him and the serpent, between him and God. And he sat outside. Adam and Eve sat outside of Eden to wander now forever east of Eden, doomed and damned for wandering east, longing to be back in the pristine innocence of Eden, but never quite being able to get back there, except hopefully being able to make it maybe in the beauty of a Christian marriage and a Christian home. It makes me think uh, years ago, Maybe you've seen some of these old reruns of the Honeymooners, Jackie Gleason, uh, and Alice. He turns to Alice in one of these, and he says to his wife, Alice, All right, Alice, from now on, in this house, I'm king, and you're nothing. And she replies, Big deal, king of nothing. When we mistreat those who are nearest to us, it turns around to curse us. Whenever a man treats a woman merely as a physical object for his own selfish gratification, then the consequences of the curse, the sin, the suffering, the divorcement will be reproduced in that relationship whenever a woman treats a man merely as an object, not a subject, a thing, to be selfishly squandered, exploited for her own selfishness, then the consequences of the curse will occur. I uh, taught a class at our school, Marriage and Family, for several years. During that time, I read a lot of books on marriage uh, and family. And um, I think every single book I've read on marriage and family has at least one chapter set aside on communication. It is so important in marital relationships, family relationships, to communicate effectively. Now, most of us get the idea that effective communication (laughs) is saying it loud enough, using harsh enough words, that that other person has to hear what we're trying to say. And what we fail to realize is that effective communication is not saying, it's not talking, it's listening. It's hearing what the other person is really trying to say. And I encounter this so much in counseling in relationships. The lack of ability to listen. Because listening is hard work. Listening is an act of grace. Listening is turning off our minds to all of our own selfish preoccupations and really tuning in to what that other person is trying to say to us. That's a discipline. And we're all good at talking. Why? Because talking is easy. Listening is work. I've probably counseled literally hundreds of college students over my 48 years of teaching. I want to tell you one of the most common complaints that would come across my desk from college students, Christian, from Christian homes and families. They would say, my parents do not understand me. My parents don't have a clue to what I've been going through the last two or three years in high school. 
Now, I've lived long enough to know that these people described to me by college students as parents don't always fit the description that these kids give, but I do know that most of us are probably better at talking than we are at listening. I had a graduate class that was taught by a psychiatrist, medical doctor. He was a psychiatrist. And his first assignment was, I want you to go, uh, come back tomorrow with pictures of your family. Draw pictures of your family. I thought, this is a graduate class. We did this in kindergarten. I got to do this in graduate school? Yeah, we all wanted to pass, so we drew pictures of our family. But there was a kid on the front row, and he drew his mom and dad like this in profile. And being a psychoanalyst, this professor jumped right on. He said, why'd you draw your mom and dad like that? He said, you know, when I drew it, I didn't think about it. But now that I think about it, it occurs to me, that's how they always looked to me. They never paid any attention to me at all. I have a book in my library entitled Divorce Won't Help by Edmund Burglar. In it, he says... Marriage is a two-dimensional study in frustration, an intimate relationship without intimacy. And so we've seen a turn as a result of this to small groups. We have all different names for them, sensitivity groups, therapy groups, tea groups, all kinds of small groups in an attempt to recover some of the intimacy God originally intended we experience in our homes, our marriages, our families. And we go out looking for substitute, maybe even artificial means of replacing what God intended for us there. Hard work, yes. We have a term for this in the field of psychology. There are two words in psychology, sympathy and empathy. Now, empathy is, is a deeper word than sympathy. Empathy is really getting inside of that other person's experience and having it for your own. My favorite definition of empathy is your hurt in my heart. And that's work. That's toil. To really get inside the other person's experience and have it for your own. There's a term in the field of philosophy for this. Carl Jaspers, an existentialist philosopher, calls this presence. Presence. You ever been with somebody who wasn't there? Well, that's a stupid question. No, this can happen at church, right out here in the foyer. You're shaking hands with somebody while you're looking around for somebody else to shake hands with. Now, they're there. They're occupying space. But are they really present? Where were you last night, Dad? Oh, I was with the family. Were you with the family? Huh? Buried in the newspaper, glued to the tube with the family? Happens to mothers, too. She's got that... Ladies group coming over Thursday. She's got to get down and get the quick serve food ready. And Johnny comes up and says, Mommy, see what I draw? Mommy's busy now. Present. But is she really present? We have a beautiful word in the Christian faith for this. It's called the incarnation. It's called Emmanuel. My favorite name for Jesus. God with us. God come down to be among us, to get inside of our experience, to walk in our shoes and communicate to us the fact that when we talk, he listens. He listens. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, the, uh, the tabernacle always um, faced east. The, uh, op- the, the gate, the doorway into the temple was always called the eastern gate. You go in the eastern gate, right there in the holy place are three articles, the brazen laver and the candlesticks, but over on the right-hand side was a table. 
They called it the table of showbread. There were 12 loaves of bread on that table, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The priests were responsible for keeping that bread fresh every week. But do you know what the Old Testament Hebrews called that bread on the table? They called it the bread of presence. Whose presence? Whose presence? Ladies and gentlemen, when I participate in communion, he is present in the bread. It's not just symbolic and representative. He is present in the cup. He is present in the waters of baptism. He is a present God. Grace that can save. Grace can save a home, it can save a marriage, it can save a family. When members are willing to give themselves. This brings me to the New Testament now. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. Now Ephesians is a book. The theme of a book of Ephesians is unity. Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians makes a gargantuan claim. He says in Jesus Christ the entire universe is held together. Now in chapter 5 we have what Martin Luther called the hostile fell. Or the household passages. Now, what's he doing? Is he just tacking on nice little advice for husbands and wives and and slaves and masters and children and parents? No, what he's really saying in the Ephesians is, how am I going to be able to go out into this first century empire and preach about the almighty power of Almighty God to hold in Jesus Christ the entire universe together if that power cannot be manifested in the homes and the families of the Christian church? How could, why they would render the message innocuous if there wasn't evidence in our lives. The hostile fell. The household passage. This is what Martin Luther called this section. Submit one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, <clears throat> submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband's head of the wife uh, as Christ is the head of the church and so on. Submit. That's a tough word, particularly in the age of feminism. You know, how does that ring in the, uh, in the ears of the feminists? I don't, I don't know. It's a tough word, but it's wives submit. And uh, then he turns to us. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. He has more to say to us men than he does to the women. And, and the men like to take that verse on the women and say, see here, submit, submit. No, no. Listen, men, to what he has to say to us. If you look closely... He has more to say to us, and he puts the women in the more enviable of the two positions. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, how? As Jesus Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself for her in order that out of her he might make the most beautiful thing in all the world. If we could somehow reproduce the spirit of this text in our lives and homes? Would it make a difference of the witness power in the church of the 20th century? Does our culture need to hear this message? Does the broken families and marriages in our culture need to see what it really was intended to be like? We could show them, and we need to. This uh, was illustrated, I think, best 
in a, what I call an epic drama in the Old Testament, one of the greatest epic dramas ever in the history of the church. It occupies about 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's a story of a young man who grew up in a family of lying, cheating deceivers. Trace them back, all, his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all of them lied and cheated, but he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a cheater. His name was Joseph. He was sold by his brothers in an act of treachery and selfishness to a traveling caravan of Midianites, Amalekites, to be a slave in Egypt. You know, a slave in Egypt probably wouldn't live very long, but they didn't care. Odd man out, Joseph's got to go. He's fouled our sweet communion. But down in Egypt, the Bible says the providence of God was with Joseph. He rose to become royal food commissioner over all the land of Egypt. He became the second most powerful man in the world, Joseph. Twenty-five years go by, and famine brings his brothers into his court begging food. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he puts them to a test, a fascinating test, He wants to find out whether or not they would rip off another brother, his own blood brother, Benjamin, the way they'd ripped him off 25 years back there on the plains of Dothan. They've no choice but to submit to the test. But uh, at the crucial moment in that test, one of the brothers comes before the high tribunal, Joseph, and begs for his brother's life. That brother's name was Judah. Judah says, please let my brother go. I will be your slave. I will live out my life in your court. I will serve you if you'll just let my brother go. I cannot bear to go back home and watch my father go down to his grave, gray and in despair at the loss of another son. Let me take his place. Don't ever forget who was born the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me take his place. It broke Joseph's heart. The Bible says he went back into his chambers. He wept. He came out. And then before his brothers, in accents painfully familiar, I'm sure, to their astonished ears, he announced, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold. But what you had meant for evil, God has met for good. God has sent me before you to preserve life. And so the family is saved and the messianic hope of Israel is saved. But the turning point in that story was when Judah, who had been a lying, cheating, selfish taker, decides to give his life in an act of grace for his brother. Maybe those of you who have children have animals. Oh, we've always had animals in our house, all kinds. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, the usual cats and dogs and hamsters and birds. But no, I'm talking uh, iguanas and ball pythons and lizards. Chip had, I think, 16 different varieties of lizards in his room. Eric was three and a half years old, and he came up to me and he said, Dad, why can't I have a buffalo? (laughs) 
Well, I said, son, we don't have room for a buffalo. Whoa, dad, I could keep him in the backyard on a string. Well, one evening, uh, I'm in the family room reading the newspaper. The kids are cutting up and Jan's fixing supper. And she turns to me and says, honey, would you please do something with the children? Okay, I set them up on the couch. I said, let's have a story. What story do you want? Well, they wanted Red Riding Hood. Now, I really get into these stories, and I'm really into this one. I got grandmother locked up, and the wolf's in bed, and Red Riding Hood sees the wolf and says, Oh, my, thinking at grandmother, what big ears you have. Well, the better to hear you with, my dear. But what big eyes you have, the better to see you with, my dear. Oh, but grandmother, what big teeth you have, the better to eat you with, my dear. And that wolf jumped out of bed and was just about ready to eat Red Riding Hood. And a woodman passing by heard the noise coming from the cabin, rushed to the cabin, threw open the door, saw the wolf, shot, and killed the wolf dead right there. Eric said, five years old, he says, oh, darn. I really like that wolf. <laughs> I didn't know how to recover the story. I didn't know where to go from there. I knew the kid loved animals, but I thought, this seems to be a little bit over the top. But we laughed. Exactly five months later, we almost lost him in a drowning accident. Five years old, he went down to the bottom of the nine-foot diving well in the neighbor, a brand-new neighbor swimming pool two doors away from us. I wasn't there. Attempts to rescue him failed. The screams brought a kid who was painting the house around who dove in and pulled Eric out and set him up on poolside. And they began mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which we believe ultimately saved his life. Word came across Lincoln to me, Tom, they've just pulled Eric out of the pool, rushed him to the hospital. He's not doing well. I jumped in my car. I drove as fast as I could across Lincoln, and I found myself doing some of the most desperate praying I've ever done in my life. I found myself bargaining with God. God, I don't know what you want from me, but you can have it all if you'll spare my son. I'll never forget driving up the emergency room, opening the door, just as they were taking the oxygen mask off of little Eric. There he was, five years old, in his little blue swim trunks on that white gurney. And he sat up, and he began to cry. And I can tell you that was the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. He was just fine. No brain damage. Everything was good. And uh, that night, Jan and I sat on his bedside and watched him breathe. And we gave thanks to God. But that night, I learned something that I had preached about before, but I never understood it quite like I did at that moment. I love my family, my wife, my children. There's little in this world I would not do for my wife and kids. But there is a sense in which I do not own them. There is a sense in which their lives are in the hands of another. My wife and my family are a trust. I am a steward. They are gifts from God. What am I saying to the giver of those gifts if I mistreat them, abuse them, or reject them? 
Our members take home is a little more like hell. But where members give, where members give, we get a taste of what might be like our heavenly home. Grace, grace is as free as the air that we breathe. Yet grace in the home costs us everything that we are. I don't know whether you're mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, cousin, whatever. Doesn't matter. This morning, if you're outside the body of Christ, you're keeping your family from access to the most powerful, unifying force in all God's universe. And don't prevent your family from access to that. It's the love and the grace of God inherited through Jesus Christ. It's appropriated at baptism. That's where we contact the blood of Christ, the cleansing power of his blood. And if you've not engaged in that, then invitation is for you. You come forward and don't waste another minute. Let's stand and as we sing.